There's no sign of the trio that set out across the Arctic landscape ten days ago now. No tracks, no gear, nothing. Two days into our search, and we have yet to see a single indication that the men were ever here. But there is some good news. I haven't heard the voices at all yet today. Of course, the day is still young. The blinding Arctic desert stretches out in all directions. The landscape constantly changing as wind moves the snow around, like sand dunes in the Sahara. It's summer here in Antarctica, and the sun doesn't set. We all wear our protective goggles, keeping snow blindness at bay. It's a warm day today, only two degrees Fahrenheit. Burton is currently in the lead, trudging through the snow, making holes for us to step in. Sheargard is behind him, then it's me, followed by Gunther taking up the rear. After two days of travel, we can finally see the anomaly. Its bulk pokes over the horizon when the wind isn't blowing enough snow into the air to obscure it. I can't help but stare at it. Its numerous and massive tentacles seem to move slowly, as if swayed by gentle currents of water. But I know it only appears that way to me. The creature is so massive and distant that my mind has trouble comprehending the true speed at which those tentacles are moving. And they don't seem to be moving for any purpose. As far as I can tell, the creature doesn't move from its spot in the barren wastes of inland Antarctica. The pistol on my hip seems so minuscule against such a being. It would be less than useless. Even the four of us shooting together probably wouldn't do any damage. Still, it feels good to have it on my hip and to be wearing thin but warm gloves that will allow me to shoot without removing them if I need to. We continue on for several hours, scanning the landscape for the first expedition. Still, we see no sign of them. Sheargard, who's in the lead, suddenly stops. The rest of us follow suit. He stares at the huge, distant creature for a moment before dropping his backpack and turning to me. I can't see his eyes through his goggles, but his mouth is set in a hard line. What is it? I ask. He gestures over his shoulder toward the monster. Does it seem like we haven't gotten any closer to that thing in the last few hours? I've been thinking the same thing, but I say nothing, gathering my thoughts. Gunther comes up to join the discussion. I think you're right, he says to Sheargard. It doesn't seem like we've made any progress toward it. It doesn't matter, I say. We're here to locate the missing men, or their remains, and then activate the beacon so backup can come. If we don't get any closer to that thing, I'll be happy. Yeah, sure, Sheargard says. But we should still be getting closer, shouldn't we? I mean, we're heading straight for it. I don't care how big it is. We should be able to see a difference after half a day of walking. The fact that we haven't bothers me. Maybe it's moving away from us, Gunther says. Or maybe it's not even there at all. Maybe it's a trick. Some kind of anomaly that will always look like it's that far away to us. They detected it on radar, I say. It's there, all right. I know, but you have to remember that we know so little about this thing, Gunther says, pleading his case. When you've seen as much crazy shit as I have, you start to think outside the box. He's right. When working for the Foundation, there's no such thing as solid ground. Science and the laws of nature go out the window. I look back at Burton, 
who stands apart from us, gazing off into the distance. It's gone, Burton says. I turn around to look toward the creature, seeing that he's right. It is gone, just disappeared somehow, leaving nothing but pale sky and snow. Look, Shugart says, pointing to a low ridge about a mile away where three figures have just emerged. They're walking toward us and away from where the creature once was. I don't get it, Gunther says. We would have seen them unless they'd been camped behind that ridge for the whole day. Doesn't matter, I say. We found them and they're still alive. That's what matters. The four of us gather ourselves and set out toward the three men from the original expedition, just as the wind kicks up and throws snow into the air, causing us to lose sight of them. We walk for 30 minutes before the wind dies down, at which point they become visible to us again. But as soon as they do, concern ripples through my team. What the fuck is going on here? Gunther shouts. This is impossible. We've been walking for half an hour. Burton and Sheargard are both silent, staring at the three figures trudging through the snow toward us, still a mile away. We have gotten no closer to them. Incomprehensible whispers fill my brain. Some words are English and others are not. It's as if I can understand each word as it comes. But that understanding slips away with the end of the utterance, making it impossible for me to understand anything they're saying. Stark fear erupts in my chest and I turn around slowly, driven by some instinct to look past Sheargard at the rear. The creature looms there, yards away, so tall that I have to cock my head all the way back to see its top. A brilliant poison yellow eye the size of a house opens amid the forest of tentacles on its dark, amorphous body. Then another, and another. They stare down at me as the voices rise to a maddening cacophony. I can do nothing but scream. What? What is it? Shugart shouts at me, hands on my shoulders. Stop screaming! It, it was just there. I say in a whisper. I saw it there. The creature is gone. If it was ever there to begin with. There are no indentations or markings in the snow to indicate it was anything more than a hallucination. Burton and Gunther are both looking at me, their expressions of concern clear, even through their reflective goggles. We need to get the fuck out of here, Gunther says. What about the other team? Burton asks. Well, they're not getting any closer, Gunther replies. We set up camp here, get some rest, let them come to us, Shugard says. That okay with you, Sims? I nod, then look over to the horizon. The creature is there far beyond the trio of men that continue to trudge toward us, seemingly on a giant hidden treadmill. Please tell me you all see it now, I say. Christ, Gunther says as he looks that way. Yeah, I see it. That thing gives me the death shivers. The other two men say that they see it too. I feel relieved, but I'm surprised to find that the relief is caused by the reappearance of the creature. I felt a strange sort of sadness when I thought it was gone. But now it's back, and he continues talking to me. We get settled in quickly, but I don't sleep at all. I can't. Visions and flashes of knowledge keep my brain churning. The voices are becoming clearer, and I'm sure that if I stick with it and keep listening, I'll be able to figure out what it's trying to tell me. Whatever it is, it's important. I know that now. I share a tent with Burton whose snoring tells me that he's sleeping soundly. I carefully pull on my boots, gloves, and headgear, 
Then I secure my foundation issue pistol back on my hip. I pack up my sleeping bag and my other gear and slip out of the tent. Since the sun doesn't set during the summer in Antarctica, it's still bright out, even though my watch says it's past 10 at night. Instead of traversing the sky from east to west, the sun circles around, staying not far above the horizon for days during this time of year. And as I swing my pack on, the sun is behind the tentacled behemoth, obscuring the daylight and casting an immense shadow. But there's still enough light for me to see the three men off in the distance, walking toward me. It has only been two hours since we set up camp, and I assume these men have been walking toward us that whole time. But they still haven't come any closer. I start toward them, urged on by the voices in my head. The meaning behind the words is right there, just beyond the periphery of my understanding, as if waiting inside a fog bank. All will become clear soon, as long as I keep going. After 10 minutes of walking, my spirits are bolstered as it's clear the men grow closer. We close the distance within half an hour, assembling on a stretch of snow that looks like any other. But as we get closer, I think I recognize the men. They're bundled against the cold, but I recognize the gear they're wearing. Sims, the one in the lead calls. He sounds just like Gunther. Where did you go? I stop moving, reaching down for my pistol, just to be sure. I look back over my shoulder and see the two tents, red and blue, back behind me. I didn't actually see Gunther and Sheargard when I left, but I did see Burton. And now here he is, standing impossibly before me. Whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Sheargard says, putting a hand to his own gun as I grip mine. Where did you come from? I shout, not yet pulling out my pistol. We woke up and you were gone, Burton says both hands up in a placating gesture. You went and found the others. Where were they? I didn't find anyone, I say, trying for a moment to get the voices in my head to stop whispering so I can think. I just left you guys. Those are your tents behind me. The three men look at each other. Maybe you should take that pack off and sit down, Sims, Gunther says. When did you wake up? I ask them. What? When did you wake up and find me gone? Must have been nearly 10 hours ago now, Gunther answers. We saw your tracks though, and started after you. I shake my head, hand still on my pistol. Let's just take a minute here, Gunther says. You say you didn't find Commander Man's team? No, I say, eyes on the creature in the distance. It doesn't matter. You three keep going, go back to base. See if you can even get there. Whatever you're thinking of doing, we can't let you. You need to come back with us, Shirgard says. I pull my pistol out, but keep it pointed at the ground. No, I have to keep going. As I move forward at an angle to edge around the men, Gunther makes a move. I thumb the safety off while raising my gun, firing right into Gunther's face. Blood, brains, and bones splatter across the snow behind him. Both Burton and Sheargard go for their guns, leaving me no choice but to put them both down with two shots each, marring the brilliant ivory snow with their dark insides. I move past the dead men, taking several steps before looking back over my shoulder at the two tents. Three men stand next to them in their sleep clothing, looking my way. Men I recognize, the very same men I just killed. I glance at the three dead bodies, then continue on my way. 
It takes me only a few hours to get to the creature. It only allows certain people near, those who are worthy. I understand that now. All others, it tricks, keeping them away. I pause a few yards away from it, looking up into one of its four eyes. The voices are stronger here, clearer. Everything is clearer here. And as I stand, staring at the skyscraper-sized being, I begin to understand. The words whispered in my head keep their meaning, stringing together truths that stretch my thinking processes beyond their innate abilities. I can almost hear my consciousness shattering under the weight of astounding knowledge and truth. The cosmos stretches out before me, showing me the meaning of infinity. Understanding cripples my human brain, crushing it down so it can assimilate into the true fabric of the universe, allowing all that was and could ever be to swirl around me in one never-ending kaleidoscope of pain, pleasure, love, hate, joy, and sorrow, and of nothingness. The true beauty of the lack of everything, the darkest depths of the sludge beyond life, from which comes beings immeasurable and impossible. Strings of time shoot off into the distance, some coming abruptly to an end and others continuing on in circles. But all of them are minuscule against the scale of everything and nothing that crowds the shared consciousness of all galaxies, all universes, and the ever-expanding fabric of that for which there is no word. With the last processes left in my limited, pitiful human brain, I feel what it means to be truly insane. I witness the rending of consciousness and confront the depth of all experience contained within the human race. And it is horribly, exquisitely, painfully beautiful. SCP-2764 is a massive biological entity of unknown origin. Its height measures to be approximately 382 meters and is estimated to weigh over 150,000 metric tons. The entity possesses between 75 to 85 tentacular appendages extending from the ventral region of its body. It uses this mass of tendrils for both movement and simple utility actions, such as picking objects up. The organism appears to have a cranial extrusion, which is hypothesized to contain its brain. But there is no backing data for this, and the only organs visible on this head are its eyes, of which it possesses four. Aside from SCP-2764's clear violation of the theoretical limit to a biological organism's size on Earth, its anomalous properties include the following. It possesses the ability to telepathically communicate, the language in which it communicates is dependent on the listener. SCP-2764, however, does not appear to understand any messages it receives in response. The organism's size does not appear to follow Euclidean geometries. That is, one cannot distinguish the organism's true size based on simply looking at it, as the creature will often appear to be many times smaller or larger than estimates determine it to be. SCP-2764's appendages appear to rapidly translocate themselves inexplicably. They will also transpose with each other's positions in space at very rapid intervals. Whether this has a relation to the previous anomaly mentioned is, as of yet, unknown. Lastly, and perhaps most noteworthy, SCP-2764's position will flicker on occasion, though the frequency of this event is unknown as it appears to occur on a completely unsystematic basis. 
the location of SCP-2764 has never flickered further than 25 kilometers, and the object has always flickered back to its original location within 48 hours.